Welcome to the Daily Dad Podcast. During the week, we bring you a daily meditation of the best parenting wisdom we can find, drawing on history and philosophy and psychology and literature to inspire you to be a little bit better at the most important job you have. And then on the weekends, I have sort of a wrap-up conversation with my friend, fellow dad, and writing partner, Niels Parker. We just explore what's going on in our lives, what we're struggling with as parents, what we're doing well, what we want to do better, and what we've learned along the way, and what we've learned in the last week. So let's go. One of the weird rituals I've told you about in my life is I walk every morning with my kids all the way to the end of the dirt road that we live on. We open the mail. We just got these new sort of steel mailboxes and you use your key, you open your mailbox and then I have another key and that's where your packages are. My kids are always so excited whenever I get a package. Well, the curators at Bespoke Post have done it again, a package we're excited to get when it comes each month. Every month they send an essential box of awesome collections for guys that are guaranteed to upgrade your life Each month, Box of Awesome sends you a collection of cool stuff that suits whatever interests you. Huge amount of collections, no matter what you're interested in. Great outdoors, that's the one I signed up for. Style, cooking, mixology, and more. To get started, you take a quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers help them pick the right Box of Awesome for you. And each month, they release the new boxes across a ton of different categories. The price is great. It's free to sign up. Each box costs 45 bucks. That has close to double that every month in highly curated gear inside. Get 20% off your monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code DAILYDAD at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code DAILYDAD for 20% off your first box. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of the podcast. I've been telling you about the new book, The Boy Who Would Be King, which is my illustrated all-ages fable about Marcus Aurelius. Well, in today's episode, I wanted to give you some a bit of my conversation with the great Victor Juhas. He's a fantastic illustrator. You've probably seen his work in Rolling Stone, The Washington Post, Esquire, Sports Illustrated, and more. He's also a father to three sons and a Roman history fan. And so he was kind of the perfect person to collaborate with on this book. And so in today's episode, we talk about Marcus Aurelius and his family, the sort of troubled relationship that Marcus has with his brother Lucius, Marcus's relationship with his own son Commodus, and how his life mirrored or failed to mirror his ideals. And we talk about how we produce this work together. Vic talks about a bunch of stuff we don't include in the book. There's a lot of cool things we had to leave out, and we just nerd out about philosophy. This is a great episode about parenting, about philosophy, and of course, the timeless journey of Marcus Aurelius to become who philosophy wants him to be. Please check out the new book, The Boy Who Would Be King. You can check that out at dailystoic.com king uh, or go to the Daily Stoic store at store.dailystoic.com. Well, I'm I'm so, I'm so happy like it, it exists. It's it's by the time people are listening to this, it will be a, a well into a year of the process. But it feels amazing to me to sort of hold. I don't have the finished finished book in my hands, but I have the 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 final the final page proofs, and it feels incredible to me that the thing 
that was just an idea in my head is now a real book. And uh, you helped make that possible. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure. It was uh, an absolutely fascinating process. And uh, I learned so much in, during it. And also, uh, from my standpoint, there was uh, it was such great fun to do. And I, uh, it was one of those blessed experiences in an illustrator's life. Well, the idea of it being somewhat blessed struck me in that afterwards you, and I guess maybe I should have done more of my research, but you came so highly recommended by by our mutual friend, Sean Coyne, that, uh, and I saw your drawings on your site, and I was like, this guy can do it. But but what was incredible to me was you sent me two, like, like last month, you sent me two children's books that you'd done about ancient Rome. What, <laughs> I didn't even know you did that. What are the chances that you'd already... Uh, You'd already studied this exact era and practiced. Yeah, well, that was uh, years ago. I did those. One was on uh, actually Greek mythology. Z is for Zeus. It was for Sleeping Bear Press. And the other one was um, G is for Gladiator about the Romans, uh, also for Sleeping Bear Press. And uh, in with both of those books, I did an awful lot of research. I think one of the great uh, pleasures of being an illustrator and, and doing... Uh, uh, a, a book like this is is the research time that I get to to put in. Uh, I'd say forty percent of the book is is basically just looking up and reading and and finding reference and and just learning more. Yeah, I was curious about that. So, like, when you like, let's say you set out to draw someone like Marcus Aurelius as a young boy, where and and I know I gave you some some pictures of my kid as a as a loose inspiration but like when when you go to like hey I want to get the essence of someone who who's you know I'm trying to depict on the page what do you look for um i would think that uh most important for me is is uh getting that as much factual reference as I can before I start interpreting the, the, the factual reference. Now, of course, we have those statues of Marcus Aurelius. I think we even have a painting or two, but I do know that we have statues. And and actually, there I found something on Google, and God bless Google for, for all this access to information. Um, I found reference, one sculpting of him uh, attributed to him as as a young man, a young boy. Right. So I said, okay, good. So now I can jump back and forth. As it turns out, I I found his face very interesting and um, aged it appropriately to the older uh, Marcus Aurelius statues. And uh, from that point, it was a matter of just staying staying faithful to the sketches, the drawings that I had created so that we didn't veer off too far. I think during the process of, of sending sketch, sketches back and forth with you, uh, it, it became apparent that I had to kind of pay attention to some of the details and not and not make Marcus Aurelius this uh, zealot kind, kind of character look in all sorts of different ways. What did you find so interesting about his face? That's uh, That's a curious statement. There was a certain sadness in that um, uh, an, an, old, an older soul, let's not call it sadness, let's call it an older soul 
uh, characteristic in the sculpting of him as a young boy. Um, and then, of course, you look at the older uh, portrait uh, sculptings of him, and he has definitely um, become a wise, a wise adult. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm looking at this statue. There is kind of a, a sad, there is a sadness to it. I mean, it's partly because I've got to imagine it's partly because the eyes are missing. But but if you think about what that must have been like, you're this kid, you're, you know, you're, you're, if, if you're the prince, I'm, I'm watching the queen right now, you know, if you're the prince of Wales, you're born knowing you're the prince of Wales. And there's a tradition and there's a, a sort of a burden almost from birth. It must, I, I, you know, my son's four, I imagine, okay, let's say he's nine or 10 years old. Imagine he just, you know, comes home from school one day and he's been informed by the emperor of Rome that he's going to be the next emperor. I mean, that would have been an incredible burden to place on a, on a child. In any era, you know, yeah. uh, and especially in an era where the average lifespan, that was one of the other parts of the research, the average lifespan for a Roman was somewhere around 35 years old. Well, yeah, I mean, even not to flash forward too much, but even Marcus Aurelius's life, I think he loses like between like six children. He has six children not make it to adulthood. And you're just like, uh, de death, uh, death obviously would have just been everywhere. So there's there's probably a number of explanations for the sadness that you're you're picking up on in that in that statue. And also he, I, I, the reference that you had sent me, and then which then uh, became my personal rabbit holes of finding out more information about him um, regarding his his uh, uh, seriousness. He was a serious kid. He wasn't like Lucius who was uh -huh. apparently more gregarious and uh, a much more enjoyable personality to be around. I, I believe Marcus uh, slept as a young uh, a boy on, on a very hard bed so as not to get himself too comfortable. Yeah, he did. I think, I think if, you know, obviously so much of this is projection, but that's what we do as artists. But it's, it's interesting to think like, so he's, he's, he's showing at an early age, this proclivity, this, this uh, affinity for philosophy. And, you know, he's, yeah, as you said, he's sleeping on a hard mattress. He's reading these books. He's very studious. This is from what we know before he's chosen to be emperor. So I, who does that? It's an introverted, quiet kind of intellectual kid. Um, so to then be chosen for what is not just a public position, but at that time, the most public position, it must've been, it, it, it must've been, in, it's such a difficult thing. And that's why, you know, we start the book with the idea of like, he doesn't want this. You know, so many kids like when I grow up, I want to be president. We think that we think that that's the norm. But a bunch of kids to many, many kids, if you said that, that would sound horrible. They would be, you know, they, they wouldn't want that at all. <laughs> it's probably true, especially nowadays, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so 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 you you pick up on a sadness. What what else strikes you about you know the art about Marcus Aurelius as you're trying to sort of capture this essence of of, of a person? Um, not a robust looking kid. Uh, I, I I as a matter of fact, my early sketches for you did not really portray a, a robust child. The more I read about him, 
again, compared to Lucius, he was not. And uh, he had uh, apparently a fair amount of health problems as, mm-hmm. he, as he got older. So I didn't want to make, I didn't want to make him too, uh, I didn't want this to be like a comic book in a sense, like a super, a superhero kind of story, you know, this, I, 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 I was trying to push as much as possible, a more uh, accessible human uh, angle to it, to the drawings. I, I love that. And I think I picked up on it for the same reason, because, so again, it's, it's like, only, there's only one person who's born the 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 the, the son of a king or a, of a queen, right? It's very it, in 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 one sense, it's completely impossible to relate to. That doesn't happen uh, to the vast vast majority of human beings. What's so surreal, but also accessible, I think, about Marcus's story is he was just a regular kid. I mean. He comes from a good family, and clearly he was in the right circles. I mean, how do you even meet the emperor of Rome? But at the same time, you know, he he's this is much this is much closer to almost something out of a fairy tale or or a um, what is that an uh, Horatio Alger story where 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 you know the 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 ordinary boy is is selected for extraordinary things, right. And and uh, as we follow the progression of the of the story, when you first sent me the manuscript and I was reading through it, and I, I kind of dashed off uh, a number of ideas to you when we were just in the talking process. I don't even know if I was had been selected uh, to to actually do the book yet, but I dashed off a bunch of ideas to you, and um, they were of a much lighter vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, stylistically as well as um, um, content-wise. And then once we really got into the book, the next challenge that I saw happening was as the book evolves, as your, as your story evolves, the story becomes more, far more serious. And suddenly, where I started off, maybe in a, in a, in a more humorous, whimsical manner with the drawings, I had to start adjusting the drawings to uh, complement and echo that growing seriousness that's going on in the in the in the, the story itself. So even though this is a ch- uh, technically a children's book, this is actually also a book that, ad- that adults can read. Yeah, I see it. More, I see it less of a children's book and more as a as a fable and and or as a parable. And and parables are are accessible to all ages. Yes, uh, yes. But you're right. It, it. I mean, it's it's a serious story in in that leadership is a serious thing, and those of us who are selected to it, you know, to, on the one hand, look like art is fun and spontaneous as, as, as you know, and you're, you're into it because you're passionate about it and all those things. But you also realize like, it's not that it's a burden, but that it's serious. You know what I mean? That there's sort of obligations and responsibilities attached to it that, you sort of have to come to terms with. And that that's sort of always been my reading of the story. People think it would be so fun to be the emperor. And it's probably fun if you're a bad one. Um, but to do it well is 
is extraordinarily difficult. And and just think of the weight that you you have to you have to carry. Well, the uh, the only proof we have in terms of modern times uh, is just to look at how rapidly a leader ages. Oh right, yeah. Those those pictures of Obama, you know, when he gets elected in two thousand uh, two thousand eight, and then when he leaves office in two thousand sixteen, you, you watch the you watch him go from black hair to to almost solid gray hair. Yeah, I can't think of one leader who has not ex- uh, left office uh, and not looked like uh, they've been they've been through a storm, you know. Well, they have they have been through a storm, and not to flash forward too much, but Marcus Aurelius, of all leaders, you know, gets hit with storm after storm after storm. Uh, Cassius Dio says, you know, for all uh, all of his talent and brilliance, he's not met with the luck that he deserves. Right? He's Marcus Aurelius is sickly, as you said. Then there's the Antonine Plague. Then there's a coup. Then there's wars at the border. It's you know, again, I think everyone thinks like, oh, it would be fun to be president. And then you look at the crises that are, you know, that define every presidency or or emperor. You're like, whoa! You you not you didn't just go through one storm. It was storm after storm after storm. Right, right. And uh, I I just can't imagine that kind of existence. I, I think you and I uh, in our own respective fields as as artists. Um, we deal with uh, the daily, the daily challenges, the daily uh, obstacle, obstacles in front of us to to pr- produce, to, to create, and those there we have those resistances and uh, on a daily basis, and and those distractions that we have to kind of put out of the way. Uh, by the way, you know the daily stoic has been has been since I. Since we uh, hooked up on this project, that the Daily Stoic was has become like like my morning Bible reading. Oh, know? I love that. You know, so well. No, I think I think people again. People think it would be fun, but they don't. So 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 people don't often often people are are often attracted to a, you know power or something because they think they're going to be able to wield it. It's going to give them what they want. I think Marcus is a bit of a cautionary tale in the sense of like, no, he he was reluctant because he knew what it was going to take out, out of him. So like, it's funny, you know, on, on the extreme end of the spectrum of the Stoics, you have Marcus Aurelius on one end, extreme power and privilege. You have Epictetus on the other, you know, sort of extreme powerlessness. He's a slave, adversity, difficulty, but they're kind of both very similar souls in that they understand that, uh, you know, they've been dealt a hand by fate that, that people think is one thing, but is actually much more complex, and uh, and they're I think they're aware of the burdens, but also the, 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 the they're just a, they're just aware that hey, look, life deals you a hand, and you got to figure out how to play it. Right, right. Um, I was also uh, I found myself very intrigued by uh, Junius Rusticus uh-huh. as well, and and uh, definitely wanted to create a character based on whatever reference we were, uh, we were able to find. And uh, I believe there is one statue of him uh, that maybe, maybe him, maybe not. I mean, there's no real way to tell. I mean, we, 
but uh, it, it's it's, just, it's attributed to him. Yes. And so uh, when I and I think that was the one that I told you. I said he looks like Roger Waters more than anybody else. Uh, he has that kind of long nose and and and. Uh, 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 chiseled out features, uh, according to the statue. So I kind of modeled, I wanted to model uh, Rusticus uh, in a, a Roger Waters kind of way. Well, Rusticus, of all of the characters in the book, is the most emphatically a character in the sense of Marcus Aurelius is real. Uh, most of what is said or done in the book is is either something he learned or something directly from the Stoic philosophy. I wanted, you know, the real story of Marcus Aurelius's life is is unfortunately much more tragic and complicated than than we do in the fable, right? Mm-hmm. Marcus Aurelius loses his father at a very young age. He's raised in part by his two grandfathers. Then Hadrian sees potential in him. Hadrian selects him to be the emperor, but you know, Marcus is just a boy, and he realizes how you know insane it would be to to you know, to, to put a boy in charge of the empire. So he adopts Antoninus Pius, who in turn adopts Marcus Aurelius. And I, I suspect Hadrian thinks that Antoninus Pius is going to live for a few years, you know, that he might lead until, you know, Marcus is in his early twenties and then Marcus takes over. In fact, I think Antoninus rules for like almost two decades. So Marcus has this extraordinary experience with like, basically a third father or a fourth father, right? His, his actual father, his grandfather's uh, Antoni- Hadrian, then Antoninus Pius. So that was just way too complicated. And frankly, because I did want kids to read the book, I didn't want to get into, I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk to my own son just yet about, you know, that your father can die and then your stepfather can die and then your other stepfather dies. You know, that was a bit much. So uh, I, I decided instead to sort of focus all of that sort of paternal mentor energy into kind of an Obi-Wan, you know, uh, you know, uh, guide, you know, education, uh, educator, mentor character, which I call Rusticus. In reality, I don't think Marcus meets Rusticus until he's like 25. But um, so for people listening, Rusticus is a a composite character of many influences in Marcus's life. Right, right. So when you try, when you're trying to project, when when you're trying to... uh, so Marcus, you can look at all these different statues and sort of get to the bottom of it. How do you decide to render Rusticus as you do? Um, I wanted to exp- uh, to render, to create a character that looked like he had a great deal of experience and and information and wisdom to impart on, on Marcus Aurelius. And... That that became a matter of, like I said, uh, I, I used Roger Waters as a as a guide, and and that one st- uh, sculpting that uh, we, was found in reference, and then he became like this. Uh, he becomes like this uh, foil, in a sense, to to Marcus's acting out, and and he comes in. If this was a movie, he comes in at the right time to kind of talk him off the ledge or to to get him yeah. to refocus or or do to do something to get back on course. And um, so he he pops in and out. And at the same time, those scenes, the, the, those those scenes that I was setting up 
between him and Marcus, where, where they're having those conversations, where Marcus, I mean, where Marcus is not really on board with doing what he has to do, and Rusticus is very patiently telling him, um, sometimes emphatically, but still, he's he's very patient, and he's like, you know, you've got to. This is not what you're you're meant to do in life. You've really got to get on the ball here and and fo- refocus. Yeah, in the the concept of the of the hero's journey, there's that sort of, you know, you get the call to adventure. And to me, that's what Marcus being selected to become emperor is. And then you sort of struggle with it and you're not sure. And you, maybe you stumble a little bit. And then there's this sort of critical phase where you, I think Campbell says you meet the mentor and the the meeting of the mentor is such a critical breakthrough. And to me, that's what, that's what Rusticus is. He's the sort of the, the guide that helps Marcus realize that potential. And again, in reality, it was Antoninus Pius does this the most. Like when you read meditations, the longest uh, sort of page of thanks is to Antoninus, although Rusticus gets quite a bit too. Um, it, but but he could not he could not have become who he became without this mentor. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, what's so what's so funny though is 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 so we go, oh so you just have to find the mentor. But, you know, and I tell this story loosely in, in Lives of the Stoics, but Seneca and, you know, Nero is is not born to be emperor either. His mother marries the emperor and then she sort of, you know, helps him eliminate his rivals and, and sort of jostles. So eventually Nero is in line. But Nero meets Seneca, the, the one of the greatest, wisest, wisest Stoics, roughly the same age, you know, a few years different, a few years earlier even. Mm-hmm. Then Marcus meets Rusticus in real life, and yet the two emperors could not have turned out differently. So, you know, uh, there's that expression, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. But the reality is Nero probably has a better teacher than Marcus has in Rusticus, but you get a very different result because ultimately it's about, you know, what is the student willing to do? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that we realized as we were art students was that it didn't really necessarily matter what school you went to. It was great to go to a very good art school. Um, but it was what you brought to it. I mean, if you didn't, if you were not there within the spirit of wanting to, to do something with it, you could have gone to the, the best school in the, in the, in the world and, and not produced, you know, and not come out of it. Right. You got to you got to do the as, as Rusticus says in the books, like it's not going to be easy. I can show you the way. Right. But sort of you got to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is good, which is good, which is what we hope to uh, we, we've imparted on. Uh, or, well, you, you're, you're a young father, still, but I had hoped that I was imparting to my son and uh, and. Maybe I didn't impart it in the most subtle ways at times, but uh, the the intention was to this is whatever successes, and I'm going to harass you in a sense, but you're going to uh, but in the long run, if you succeed, it's because you followed through on it, not me. I didn't I didn't do your homework. You did. Yeah, that's right. I can show you how to do it, but ultimately, you have to do it. One of the things that that we do know happened again, it was at a different age, but you know we have the scene where where Rusticus gives Marcus this stack of books. One of the things that I think is so incredible, just because it feels so, 
modern is that, and, and Marcus thanks him at the beginning of Meditations for this, Rusticus is the one who introduces Marcus to Epictetus. And Marcus says, you know, thank you to Rusticus for loaning me his copy of Epictetus directly from his own library. And, and we actually get the sense because Epictetus didn't publish anything that these may have not, this may not have been a copy of Epictetus. This may have been uh, Rusticus's own notes. Like Rusticus himself may have met Epictetus. And I just think that's so incredible that here you have a slave in, influencing the most powerful man in the world through only a singular intermediary. And, and I just love the idea that it's like this guy changed his student's life by recommending a book because we, that's happened to all of us. All of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think all of us can, can thank certain people in our lives uh, who, uh, who saw something in us that maybe at the time we didn't see, obvious, or more certainly at the time we didn't see ourselves, but they, they pushed us. They, they kicked us in the ass maybe, you know, you could say no, to, to, totally. And and I think that's a tricky thing with kids too. And this is why I wanted to do the book is that like, there are, there are a lot of very entertaining kids books. There's a lot of very funny kids books. There, where I think it struggles is sort of entertaining, well done books that are uh, also in any way educational. Right, right. Um... Did you have any books that you want, that you were modeling it on? Well, uh, I like uh, the boy, the fox, the mole, and the horse. I think I'm probably got them in the wrong order, but that that's a good one. It feels uh, that book feels a lot more for adults than it feels for kids. Uh, I think it's a great book. It's clearly sold extremely well because it's uh, resonating on both levels. But the big the big model for me, and this is why I wanted to talk to you about it, was the Little Prince because you have this sort of fantastical, surreal. Uh, kind of adventure story for kids that's also operating on this totally different level for adults. And your your son worked on the Netflix version of of uh, the Little Prince. So that when you told me that, the, the whole thing felt very faded. And I didn't even know that you'd done two kids books about Roman Greece. So if I'd known then, we I think we would have we would have worked together even faster. <laughs> well. Uh... Just as well that you didn't know it right then and there. <laughs> that it, it it forced me to kind of uh, present myself w- without the advance uh, information. And, but but tell but your son did work on that, right? Well, he yes, uh, my son Alex was uh, supervising the uh, the stop motion portion of that uh, animated movie. Yes. Did you expect your kids to sort of follow in the the family business? Was that was that something you you wanted, or did it surprise you, or did you did you sense that that was the direction from the beginning? Well, I have three sons, and I never have worked anywhere else but uh, in the home. So I've never gone to work someplace. I mean, going to work was going to the third floor or. Uh, in, or, yeah, basically going to the third floor and um, and into the studio. So I was always a presence in the house. Um, I think in so many respects, they what they saw was somebody who was working a lot, sometimes uh, under a lot, uh, oftentimes under a lot of pressure, 
deadlines and such deadlines but also not necessarily doing work uh that that you wanted to do you were doing work uh, uh certainly in the early part of my career i was doing a lot of work to get known to pay the bills um to to, to keep a family uh fu- functioning and um so they saw that there was it was not always a lot of fun uh, i think there's another uh fantasy about artists that uh, it's it's this great free-flowing uh wonderful kind of energy and, and a lot of time a lot of times it's work and it's work uh that you may not necessarily find all that much fun as i was going on in my career i kind of made a deal with myself or or, or justified the work that i didn't want to do but was paying the bills with those uh, that percentage of assignments that came in that were much more satisfying, you know, and that that kind of balanced it off. It ma- it made the process uh, more amenable. But as you've talked to your son, as he wanted to get, it, and I don't know what your other two sons do, but as as this one was pursuing an artistic career, what what was your sort of rusticus uh, advice uh, as far as sort of pursuing that call? Uh, Alex, for Alex, it was uh, it was just being on his back, uh, just to follow through. He had more than one rusticus in that situation. I, he he kind of drove several of his uh, instructors at School of Visual Arts uh, kind of crazy uh, because Alex was uh, and still is incredibly charming, and uh, at the same time, there was a tendency on his part to um, let that charm cover cover uh, a, a lack of follow-through interesting as he got older and and i think once once he went on his own journey once he left the, the east coast and went to the west coast uh his story really picks up where he he leaves all his um he leaves those t- uh, those uh common temptations behind the, th- the easy things that we can always fall back onto uh to distract us and he just he grew exponentially once he uh, once he came out to California and started working on anim, on animations uh, out there. Well, that's sort of a lesson in the book too that that the sort of stoic discipline of discipline, like one of the I think again people have this fantasy whether it's being an emperor or an artist. You're like, oh, I work for myself. I get to do whatever I want. In reality, when you work for yourself, you almost have the fewest choices because so much is riding on you mm-hmm. and there you you what the right thing is is so so obvious and you just sort of have to do it yeah yeah and 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 it's on you if you if you fail it's in a sense it's on you if you succeed yeah take a bow you know but um let's see yeah, the ability to rule oneself. Like, it's like, okay, if you have a regular job, you have to get there at a certain time, which means you have to leave your house at a certain time. And then you have these prescribed breaks. And then here's the sort of rhythm of the office. And here's when they do meetings. And here's when this and blah, 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 blah. Right. But when you work for yourself, you know, now you have to impose all that structure. And so, you know, sure, there's not a tyrant telling you what to do, but you have to be the tyrant now or or else there's just chaos. And so there's this sort of, this sort of self-imposed discipline is almost a harder discipline because 
you know you could get away with not doing it, but then you also know you'd get stuck with the consequences if you don't. And so I tend to find being self-driven is a little bit exhausting. Um, I don't know why more so than, than anything else, but there is a kind of a just, you're just tired. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I think there's something almost fearful, fearsome about imposing a, uh, the discipline within yourself to get to get things done. Uh, there is something I think very uh, comforting about going someplace where the format is laid out for you, like you were describing. When you are your own, when you create, when you are creating your own format. And you have to get up in the morning and you have to uh, uh, get through the initial th- uh, exercises of the day, be it the physical exercises, mental exercises, meditation, jogging, whatever. Uh, and I can't say that I'm, I'm the most strict uh, follower of those, especially when it comes to, to exercise. But uh, uh, getting into a program um, is is important, even if, especially if you hate it every day and you're just doing it because you've got to do it. Well, I wonder if if part of why it's so fearsome or, or exhausting is also like, okay, so let's say you work at a company. There's kind of a ceiling, right? It's like this is how many this is how many widgets you're supposed to sell. This is you know what your salary is, blah blah blah. But then when you're when you're a freelancer, you're doing your own thing, it's unlimited, which is good in one sense, but it's also, it makes it hard to not do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, um, you can always do more. And so that's sort of looming over you. And you're like, well, you know, this offer came in to do X. I feel guilty if I turn it down. I feel, you know, there, there's just, um, the, the the discipline never has an end as opposed to like, I put in my eight hours, I'm good to go. Yeah. And at the same time, you've, you've, uh, uh, focused on that in, in the daily stoic that you have to learn how to say no at certain points. Mm-hmm. You have to protect yourself. Um, uh, you're not doing yourself a favor by, by just, uh, functioning in a constant forward motion there has to be time to 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 pull back and reflect and and uh not be in that work mode all the time Mm -hmm. yeah that's where the stillness comes in and i think for me that's what meditations clearly was for marcus that was a guy who had an unlimited amount of work who was always dealing with something sort of carving out a little time for himself and you know, uh, Brand Blanchard calls it in the midnight dimness. You know, he sat down with his with his journal, and I think I think that's what he was doing, and I think that's why it resonates with all of us because we, we've been at that place that he clearly is coming from in the writing. It'll be curious what kind of uh, impact you have on your 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 own uh, kids that uh, how they'll pick up on your work ethic. I know with my eldest son. He's always wanted to be an entrepreneur. He never wanted to work, quote, for somebody else on that, quote, nine to five basis. And that was, you know, as, as time went on and we would talk, he would say that that was a, just watching me 
was one of those motivating factors to do that in his own life, to, to, to be his own boss. Yeah, that's right. And I think probably being like, like growing up, I didn't, I don't remember really seeing or meeting hardly anyone who didn't have a job. You know, Sacramento, where I grew up was a, was a government town and, you know, everyone else was a, was a, you know, had a job. They worked at a company, you know, Intel was there. There was a few big tech companies too, but the point was almost everyone had a job. So it wasn't like San Francisco where you're like, oh, this person started this company. It was this person, you know, it wasn't like, hey, this person started Twitter. It was like, oh, this guy works at Intel. Um, and so, so I think I got to imagine watching your dad as your, your boys were able to do, watching you work for yourself and, and, and not just be really good at it, like the craft of it, but to be successful at it, to make a living at it, not be a starving artist. Um, there's probably something empowering in that. I've, I've, I've talked about this with some athletes too. It's like, it's not that just that their dad or their mom passed on, you know, superior genes that made them tall. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, Steph Curry grew up in basketball arenas watching his dad play basketball as a professional athlete mm -hmm. that probably made the NBA seem a lot less intimidating and a lot more real to him than it would have been to your, your average kid with the same height and the same skills. Um, you know, Steph Curry just had an advantage. He, he, there wasn't a mystique about it. Right, right. Interesting, interesting observation. Um, I, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. Well, I wanted to talk to you about another relationship in the book because it's one I've been endlessly fascinated with, um, the relationship between Marcus and Lucius, because they're not technically brothers, although uh, Marcus refers to him as his brother in meditations and in, in his letters. So he clearly had a great deal of affection for him. But, you know, we know what a king is supposed to do uh, when there is a rival to the throne of, you know, a, an illegitimate rival or or of a different bloodline. E even in, in the Stoic history, um, uh, Octavian, who's advised by his Stoic teachers to eliminate Julius Caesar's son with Cleopatra. Hmm. Uh, you know, so there there is a being a king is a bloody effed up thing, right? And and yet Marcus has a totally the opposite relationship with his brother. It's really incredible. Yeah, and then, then as we get uh, on in the book, I mean, they 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 combine at several points in the book, so that they're uh, the the scene where they're practicing wrestling, uh, and mm -hmm. Lucius is obviously stronger. The scenes where. Uh, Marcus is not happy with the fate that he's been handed in terms of becoming the emperor. But Lucius is kind of pissed off because it's like, why is he getting all the all the uh, the pomp and circumstances and, and all the special treatment? And so the, that scene where the mother, where their mom comes in and says, "I don't want to hear either one of you complaining," you know? Yes. So, yeah. No. It it's it's really it's strange because they must have, you know. Sometimes opposites get along very well, but I've got to imagine their personality types were so different that that uh, it almost makes it more impressive that they were able to get along and weren't and openly antagonistic towards each other. Like the, these were, I, if you were describing them on paper, you have this sort of austere philosopher uh, 
who, who, you know, believes that being emperor is a burden, but that, you know, stoic stoicism obligates you to do, you know, this and this, and he feels this intense connection to the public good. And, and then you describe Lucius, who's this sort of, you know, maybe a bit of a drinker and he's fun and he's much more gregarious and personable, um, you know, isn't actually selected for the throne the way that Marcus is. Um, it's, you would not think that they would then work well together, but by all, by all, um, you know, accounts they did. Interesting because, uh, didn't Lucius, Lucius was not in reality, such a great manager, right? Well, they, they sort of split from what I understand, they sort of split their roles, uh, and, and Lucius sort of takes care of the army and is away from Rome for large chunks. He ends up dying, uh, I think midway through Marcus's reign, but, but you know, there there's no accounts of them fighting with each other, plotting against each other, you know, trying to hurt each other. Um, the, you know, I I I remember actually one of the last. Let's let's talk about that because I remember one of the last notes that I I gave to you. You know, I thought the book was really good. I thought we were basically done, and I said, Vic, I'm so sorry. I have a last minute change, which is that I really noticed on the page where where Lucius. Uh, where Marcus names Lucius co-emperor, spoiler alert, mm -hmm. but I felt like the, the, the faces on the people observing this weren't stunned enough because it's, it's totally without precedent in all of human history. I mean, imagine again, I'm watching the queen right now. Uh, so it's top of mind, but imagine if when queen Elizabeth becomes queen, her father dies, she was just like, Oh yeah, I'm not going to be queen. I'm going to be co-queen and Princess Margaret is going to take half of the burdens. Like people would would be be stunned. That that's not we know that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Nobody willingly gives half of it away. And and so I really wanted just the stunningness, the incredibleness of that to to be conveyed because it's almost unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I hope I pulled that off uh, on the on the revise. I I know I changed uh, a number of the expressions, but since it was already the crowning, I think my comment comment to you back then was like, okay, so let's not make it look like everybody just walked in and this is happening. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but we will show some uh, amaz yeah. amazement at this uh, unique event, this unique kind of uh, 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 crowning. Yeah, I mean, even right. It's not like there's a ceremony, right? There's a ceremony for when someone becomes emperor. What ceremony is there when you become co-emperor? It 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 never happened, and it, it I don't think it ever happened again. I'm not sure, uh, but now now you got me a little confused. I, was it Lucius who went off to fight the wars? Uh, well, Marcus did 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 several, but I, I think almost all of the the their the entirety of their reign was was uh, was was defined by by wars of some form or another, which is kind of just the reality of Roman history. To yes, be, uh, to be honest, but just I mean, just again, just the idea of sharing power, I just found to be so incredible. And there was a line in a much much earlier version of the book. I don't know if you saw it, but which I basically have Marcus saying something like, "The job is." The job is big enough, is bigger than one person, and and the more help you can get, the better. And 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 I wanted to sort of capture because there's something in Marcus's meditations where he talks about not being afraid to ask for help. And I think there's something about that too. It's not just the lack of ego. 
it's not just the uh, the willingness to share, but it's also maybe this sense that Marcus knew there were not deficiencies in his personality, but but that he could use extra an extra pair of hands. And I I think as as a moral lesson, that's an interesting part of the idea. Because when I keep saying there's no precedent. The interesting part is there actually is a precedent in Roman history. You know, there was no president of when Rome was a republic, there was no singular head. There was two consuls. So so in Roman sort of democratic history, the idea always was there was not one single person in charge. And when that happened, that was called a dictator. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was for emergencies. But 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 that power was meant to be shared and that it was actually less uh, dangerous when it was shared. It's just, that was the system. So for Marcus to do it voluntarily is, uh, is, is, you know, again, unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and an incredible bit of uh, wisdom on his part uh, that he realized that there were strengths in uh, that Lucius could bring into it, yes, and and that he had his own strengths. You know, the, um, if I'm correct, the the, uh, the indigenous Americans they had like the sacum. Um, you had a, a sacum chief, a, a peacetime chief, but you also had a war chief too, and they they kind of uh, uh, depending on the circumstances of the time, one would take over, uh, or one would become predominant during a particular period of time. If, oh. there, if there was a war going on with another tribe, then this, then the the, uh, the war the war chief would would basically be running the show. Well so one one other thing on Marcus and Lucius which I which I think is interesting is uh there's a there's some precedent for it in in Roman history at least in the Stokes, you have this person who's sort of very strict with themselves. Marcus is very strict with himself, but he says in meditations, he says, tolerant with others, strict with himself. I, I think, love that line. I love that line. I think that that encapsulates his relationship with Lucius, where it's like, Marcus is like, here's my standard. Here's who I am. But I'm going to love my brother anyway. And there's a story, Cato is famously very, very strict with himself, but he had he had a brother. And he loved his brother so much, even though his brother, you know, was his brother, you know, wore perfume and fancy clothes and was much more, um, you know, again, outgoing and ambitious. And uh, I, I when I wrote about him in Lives of the Stoics, I quote that that great line from Springsteen where he says, sometimes when it's your brother, you look the other way. Right, and I think I think that's what Marcus does with Lucius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An interesting relationship, and uh, it's it certainly inspires me to continue reading about that period of time. I'm a big history buff anyway, so I've got just more material now that I've uh, to, to explore. But I well, love I love this because it passes on to the kids. I can't wait for the the grandkids to to, to be getting copies of this and and uh, and to give it to friends who have who've uh, children and stuff like that. And also just to give it, uh, pass it around. It's, it's. I think it's going to look beautiful. And uh, the last time I saw the the, the proofs, um, I think we have a gorgeous book. Uh, well, I'll, thank you. Yeah, I think what, one other thing I was going to say about Lucius and Marcus that's interesting too is you know the 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 big sort of historical 
question about Marcus is, well, why why is his own son so troublesome? Why why does it not work for Commodus? And anyone who's seen the movie Gladiator certainly knows how the story ends. But um, there's also it's also a big historical what if because the, the from what I understand, Marcus's original plan was that one of his sons and one of Lucius's sons would rule as co-emperors afterwards. So his thinking was nobody should be all powerful. Their power should be shared. And then when Lucius either doesn't have a son or his son passes, Marcus thinks, well, then two of my sons are going to share it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that comes to, that fails to come to pass again because of tragedy. So I think Marcus clearly had this idea that power was best shared and not wielded unilaterally. Right. And then uh, he, he's, he ends up being proven right. He's the exception that proves that rule. Yep, yep. And I, and I do believe that uh, Commodus kind of broke his heart in terms of uh, uh, what he was developing into. I suspect so. It's probably the final mercy of Marcus's life is that he, he doesn't end up he doesn't know what happens to his son. He doesn't know how bad it gets. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, as, as we, as we wrap up, I was, uh, I think, um, the sort of conclusion of the book, you know, it sort of concludes with the idea of the four virtues and the idea that, again, this is a parable of leadership. This isn't, this isn't the, the one off fantastical, you know, story of one boy chosen to be emperor. To me, this is this is the, the the what happens to all of us. We're all chosen for something, whether it's art or writing or film or entrepreneurship or politics or public service. We're all chosen for something, and and in some respects, that's a burden, but it's also an opportunity because it allows us to become who who we can be, and it calls from us, you know, courage and justice and wisdom and discipline. Yep. Yes, sir. Absolutely correct. What do you uh, what What do you think uh, is Is there anything in in Marcus's story that you didn't quite get to capture, or that you're still musing on? Any 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 sort of questions that you're left with? I'm just I'm just curious about anything we we haven't talked about. I'm kind of fascinated by uh, the relationship he had with his mother. I, I get the impression he loved his mother dearly, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but at least the way we portray her in the book, she's also not uh, – she's not a, a mushy kind of mother. She's She's got that sense of the responsibility too of what he's got to assume. So consequently, she's another kind of uh, Obi-Wan in, the, in, in, mm-hmm. in pulling him back to reality. Yes. Yeah. No, that's really important. Uh, I mean – there, so there are these sort of adopted paternal influences in Marcus's life, but I've got to imagine that the absence of his father, losing his father early, it must have, um, he, he could not have become who he was without a strong maternal presence as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The scene, and, the scene where he kind of like, are we, are we, uh, Revealing anything? Uh, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. The scene where he he's being very mischievous and and disrupts a shepherd's uh, flock, which does that's a, that's a real story. Although I think it happened when he was much older. Okay. <laughs> and he come he returns home and mom's waiting for him at the gate. Like, uh, I I I thought that was kind of charming that we were able to include that and and set it up that way. 
Well, no, and I think that that probably drives with a lot of people's experiences where it's like dad would be angry, but mom would be disappointed. And that was probably worse. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's so funny. Now, I, that's, this is a side story, and it's not even um, relevant to what we're talking about. But I, you just made me think of something else. And I'm not going to say. Okay. Are you sure? Yeah, because in, in, in <coughs> when I was a kid, <coughs> when I was in grade school, I got involved in doing something really stupid. That, that that somehow brought the the cops into the picture, and uh, I remember one of my friends, uh, the the you know he got they, his father got the phone call from the cops, and the father went off on the uh, on the police, and when my father got the call, I was watching him, and after he uh, he listened, said okay, and then he hung up the phone, and uh, he looked. He looked so heartbroken, and he said, well, we'll just see what happens. And had he beaten me, I would have preferred to get the beating rather than the sure. ex- seeing the expression on his face uh, and, and realizing that I had done something that had really um, saddened him, uh, or really disappointed him, you know? Mm-hmm. That, was, that was a far worse punishment than, than getting a strap. But knowing that that's where that sort of virtue of, of, of discipline comes in, sort of in all senses of the word, the, the discipline that your father had not to give in to what also must have been anger or frustration and instead be restrained is far more powerful uh, and probably teaches you a, a lesson one, later with your own kids, but also just a, a lesson about your temper. How could your dad then ever, you know, if your dad's losing his temper at you all the time, what, what moral authority does he have? When the, you lose yours, funny but thing the restraint is, there says more. The funny thing is, he did lose his temper all the time. And this was right. like one of the f- only times that I could remember where he didn't. I was so expected. Right. And, it, and it was a comp- the absolute opposite response. That's funny. Yeah, I was going to say when you're bringing up Marcus's mother, that's that's one story I remember, which is that apparently one... So we tell the story about Marcus not wanting to be emperor, and he sort of has this dream that makes him think he can do it, also a real part. But apparently one, as a young boy, and this, this strikes me as so sweet, um, and I don't, I don't know what age this happened at, but apparently one of Marcus's main reservations about being selected for this was that he didn't want to leave, he didn't want to have to move out of his house with his mother mm. um, and, and move to the palace. He wanted to be able to stay with her. And I just find that such a, a revealing, if true, such a revealing insight into what a sort of a, a softy he must have been underneath. Yeah, yeah. Just think of just think of him as emperor. I I think it was every year that he was emperor. There was, like you mentioned before, there was some sort of war going on. What a conflict that must have been. How how so against his internal grain uh, that must have been to to constantly be in, in, in a state of, of, of defense or offense, you know? Totally. I mean, he spends at one point, I think, eight years away from Rome. And so imagine, you know, he's missing his family. He's missing his kids. He's missing his books. You know, he's missing his routine. Um, this, this, couldn't, this wasn't the job he wanted. 
and 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 it's not like oh hey I don't want to be president but I was elected president and I have to serve for four or eight years. Mm-hmm. It's like it was the job he didn't want, and it's the it's the job you can only stop doing when you die. I mean it's it's such a it's a it's a it was a tragic gift. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and how one can only imagine what what uh, will it took for him to keep pushing on every day. Well, and the the line we have, in, you you mentioned it, where the mother says, you know, never be heard uh, complaining, uh, not even to yourself. Marcus writes that in meditations to himself. So we know he didn't want to be emperor. And he says, never let yourself be overheard complaining at court, not even to yourself. Right. So he, there, there must have been a part. He's like, I don't want to do this. I just want to go home. But he sticks with it and he doesn't even allow himself to whine about it. I know. I know. It's beautiful. So many lessons that will be of value from this book. And, uh, in, in that kind of condensed life history. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it, to seeing it in print. When, well, is, when, it, is, it, when is it coming out, actually? <laughs> so uh, it w- when people are hearing this and, and when it will come out are different things, but uh, just as interesting insight into the production process for people listening. So it went... Uh, one of the, one of the big things. Uh, so typically, I, I traditionally publish all my books. So I send them the manuscript, and then that's sort of not my problem from there. And then this this one, I decided to self publish. I wanted more sort of control over it. I wanted it to be on my own timeline. But then all of a sudden, you're faced with all these decisions, right? Decisions that you didn't have to make before. I don't know what printer Penguin Random House uses, right? I don't know what they pay. I don't know the timelines of it. I know sometimes my books go out of print, but I don't I don't know how that works. So. That was actually a big decision we made on this one was to print it in the U.S. So it went to the printer last week uh, and it should be here. I think uh, they said about four, three and a half to four weeks. So um, we should have we should have uh, books here very shortly. And then people who are listening to this are either listening to the podcast and then also this this file is going to be attached to the audiobook. So we spent a bunch of time. I spent the last couple of weeks working up the audiobook. So I read it to my kids. I did a, uh, I had two different narrators read it. We're going to do a version with sound effects and then, uh, did sort of an explainer, like sort of how, how the book came to be. But, um, Oh, yeah, by, it's, by it's the way, a whole I, different experience. A shout out to the kids who who offered critiques of their own on, on the, uh, on the drawings that I was sending in. Oh, my kids. Yeah, they definitely had feelings. I, I really appreciated that because that's always nice to, to get that kind of feedback, that kind of uh, that very honest. <laughs> what is that? Right, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that that honestly, like uh, you know, one of the things I I don't know your experiences with this, but one of the ways I found you maintain your sanity as a creative is that you want to define your success as much as possible. This is a very stoic idea. Uh, within the bounds of what's up to you, like what's in your control. And so where I got on this project, and again, we're recording this before it's out, whether it sells a thousand copies or a million copies, whether it's a big success or, um, you know, uh, take a bath on it, it's already a huge victory for me in that I got to spend so much time with my kid, one, so much time with the material, which I'm fascinated with. But 
every night during the, the early months of the pandemic, you know, I started just writing this on, you know, just random sheets of paper, um, going over and over and over it with my kids and, and them being involved in an evol- in its evolution was just such a wonderful experience that I wouldn't trade anything for yeah. that, you know, every copy that sells is just gravy because like I already got that, that part was already worth it. And, and, and just the satisfaction of like, now it exists. Like I got to work with you and the, I, I'm seeing my idea, you know, uh, illustrated in a, in a way that I couldn't have done, but, but the experience was really the rewarding part, which is where you want to be, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I really appreciate the op- the opportunity to have come on to this uh, project with you. Well, Sean Coyne uh, has been a pivotal influence, not just in this project, but for people listening who are fans of my other book. Sean Coyne is partly the one who gave me the idea uh, on Obstacle is the Way to split that book up into three parts, as, as I ended up doing. So that was a very lucky conversation and connection. And Vic, thank you so much. It was an honor to do this. I'm glad we recorded this episode as well. And uh, let's let's start thinking about the next one. Absolutely. Uh, I'm game. I'm always game. All right, man. Thank you very much, sir. Hey, thank you for listening to the Daily Dad podcast. Leave us a review in iTunes. It helps a great deal. Really appreciate it. And of course, if you know any other dads who could benefit from these messages, please let them know.